0: This morning, I have the privilege of continuing a journey through the Old Testament book of Esther. We are in part four, or somewhere around... There and uh, man this has been an invitation into a culture that's very different from ours with people who have practices and priorities that are very different from ours and those practices and priorities may be a shock to our system and everything in us is going to be tempted to jump in and fix it and superimpose our values and our priorities and we just want to learn the art of being a little more curious, asking a few more questions, entering into the messiness, and in the midst of it, finding a God who loves to work in different, a God who loves to work in messy and broken situations, just like he does in ours. Um, if you have a copy of the Bible, I would invite you to join me um, in Esther chapter 2, we're going to finish chapter 2 up and then we're going to accelerate the pace throughout um, the rest of this conversation. But we're going to wrap up chapter 2 this morning, um, kind of getting to know some of the main characters in this story. Uh, if you are just joining us, let me give you a sense of uh, what we've found so far. So the book of Esther is set about 500 years before Jesus Christ steps on the scene in uh, The city of Susa, modern-day Iran, which was then the capital city of the Persian Empire, the most powerful empire on the planet at the time. And sitting on the throne of Persia was a dude by the name of... Xerxes, the wealthiest and most powerful man in the world. At some point, Xerxes has a domestic dispute that goes public with his wife, Vashti, the queen. She disses him, just embarrasses him in front of a few thousand people and the world. He is mad. And so he writes a royal policy that banishes Vashti from his presence, never to see him again. And he strips her of a crown center on his way because he was mad. A little bit later, he starts to experience a little regret. He misses his wife. You know, no one understood him. No one got him the way she got him. And so he starts moping around. And in addition to that particular wound of absence, he just got his butt whooped. By the Greeks in a war. So now he's feeling a little shame about that. And he just pouts about the kingdom. And in order to help himself feel a little better. He goes on this massive pleasure binge. And as the king of Persia. This guy had access to hundreds of women. Whose job was exclusively to be on call whenever he needed a pleasure fix. And during that season, man, he was pushing the on-call button. He was snapping his fingers. He kept calling uh, for girl after girl. But no matter who spent the night with him, no one quite measured up to Vashti. He still missed her and continued to mope around. So his absolutely crazy team came up with an absolutely crazy suggestion. Why don't we issue a mandate to order the most beautiful virgins from across the world and call them to come to the palace. Uh, in fact, let's make it a contest. The most beautiful virgin. The one he finds most beautiful and the one who's most impressive in the bedroom, she will become his queen and she will replace Vashti and all of his hurt and wounds will go away. They propose this to to, to Xerxes, the king. Xerxes loves this. And so he issues a royal mandate that goes out, in essence, abducting girls and bringing them to the palace. It's in that context that we meet the central figure in this story, a young woman by the name of Esther. Esther. She's a Jewish girl um, who was born and raised in Persia on account of the fact that her great grandparents um, were captured and carried off from Jerusalem by the then superpower in the world, Babylon. They were taken to Babylon, you know, a little bit up the road, and somehow Esther and her family managed to make their way to Susa. Um, at some point in her early age, Esther's parents both died. And her cousin, maybe about 15 years older than she is, a man by the name of Mordecai, steps in and he adopts her. And she becomes his daughter. He raises her. Esther, arguably the most beautiful woman in the world, gets the knock on the door from the royal commission. Mandated on account of her beauty To go to the palace and begin a 12-month process of preparing for a night with the king. And so Esther heads off, goes and meets the team at the palace. Now, everybody who saw Esther fell over themselves just completely marveling at her beauty. And that was no different... With the king himself, when he saw Esther for the first time, that dude was sprung. She was stunning. He was taken aback, man. Uh, By the time the little sleepover was done, oh, he was in 100%. He locked that thing down super quick. He put a ring and a crown on it. He proposed to Esther, and Esther became his wife. She became the queen of. Persia. Xerxes had found the one. Never anyone more beautiful had he seen than this one. And he had seen thousands of women, but no one quite like Esther. He's so excited. He throws a party for the entire world to show up because he wants to show off that he has found the one. This dude even makes a holiday on account of the fact that he has found the one. This beauty named Esther. Henceforth today shall be yesterday right um everybody is asked to stop working so that they could join him in marveling and wandering over the beauty of esther because xerxes is in love and he doesn't even care who knows it right um so um esther is the queen she is the one and then we get to esther chapter 2 verse Number 19, and things get super funky um, if you ask me. If you have a copy of the Bible, um, meet me there. Um, We're just going to look at a few verses as we round out some of the stories behind the characters of this tale. Verse number 19. Hmm. When the virgins were assembled a second time. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Hmm? Okay, time out. I'm not going to lie to y'all. This is an incredibly disappointing and anticlimactic beginning to this next episode in the Esther series. What? And also, why? Those are the kinds of questions that I ask, really deep and profound ones. Now, it's not entirely clear what is meant and what is being described by this event in which the virgins were assembled for a second time. But the most likely explanation is uber disappointing and super anti-climactic. Because you remember how Xerxes fell head over heels in love with his new bride, Esther. Remember how she was the most impressive woman in the world in her beauty and in his bedroom. Remember that. She is the one... He threw a party for the world to show her up. And then you get to verse 19, talking about the second assembly of virgins. I read that and I'm like, no. Apparently, Esther was part of the first wave of virgins. But come on, Xerxes. Why? Why are you still assembling virgins? Why? I thought you shut down the whole contest and caught off the whole search. But you are still gathering virgins for your pleasure collection. Come on, Xerxes. Why? Why? Now, the obvious answer to that question, the one the author wants us to latch onto, like why on earth would Xerxes still be searching for virgins if he's found the most beautiful woman in the world, the one for him, why is he still searching? The answer is very simple, because Esther, she needs to be a little better. Esther just needs to do a little better. I'm just saying, Esther maybe needs to work out a little bit more if she's going to keep the attention and the affections of her man. Because I'm just asking, why else would this dude, Xerxes, I'm just asking the questions. Like, Like, why else would... Xerxes, this guy still be interested in other women unless Esther lost her spark and needs to maybe be a little better and work a little harder so he doesn't go from wonder at your beauty to wandering off to other women. Now, I'm asking y'all, how do you feel about this whole virgin assembly situation? (laughs) Ha ha! More importantly, how do you feel about what I just said? And how ready are you to walk out of this room or log off the stream if you haven't done it already? Man, this may just be a pastoral comment. More likely this may be the sentiments of a father of Four girls and the brother of three. Because I read this and I could not help but see a piercing reminder that I just want to go on record and say. It doesn't matter. How beautiful you are, or how brilliant you might be behind closed doors, it will never be enough to keep him content. Never. I'm sorry. I just want to go on record and make that very clear. It doesn't matter how much you work out or how well you eat, it will never be enough to keep his eyes from wandering. Girl? Esther was the most beautiful woman in 127 countries. And his eyes and his wee-wee still wandered. Can we just talk real in church? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. (laughs) I already said sprung. (laughs) Ah, Yes. I mean, these idiots who worked for him, they said, if we find him the perfect girl, the most beautiful woman in the world, he'll stop this whole binging thing that he's doing. False. Contentment is not a hotness issue. It's a heart issue. Contentment is not a sexiness issue, it's a sin issue. I'm just saying, it's not about you convincing him, it's about him choosing something. I'm talking to someone who's been carrying a false sense of guilt. His eyes are not your responsibility. Just say, I'm talking to someone who's been living in a prison of not feeling quite enough because you can't seem to keep someone's attention. Because if you only were a little better and you tried a little harder and maybe looked a little different, then maybe you would be enough to. Mm-mm. I'm talking to someone who's accepted the blame for the other person's discontentment and restlessness. You will drive yourself crazy trying to control his contentment. That's a heart issue. And you can't do it. Plus it's not your job. I'm just telling you. If Esther was not enough reason for Xerxes to start, stop going to the, the whole virginassembly.com. Then maybe it wasn't about Esther. It was about Xerxes. Maybe it wasn't about the beauty. It was about his brokenness. Now don't get me wrong. This is not a reason not to make choices out of love or generosity or desire or or commitment to bring smiles to each other's faces. But... This is just a reminder in this story, you can't cure the contentment curse in anybody. Dude, it doesn't matter how much younger you convince her to or how much more adventurous you convince her to be, it will never be enough to quench the hunger and have you call off the hunt. That's a heart issue. And by the way, it goes in every direction in every relationship with all of the people around you. If she's a bottomless pit of insecurity, it doesn't matter how beautiful you tell her she is, she will sabotage that compliment and tell her, You don't tell you, you don't say enough nice things. If something on the inside is broken, you can reassure and reaffirm as much as you want, but the threat is going to continually be there. In fact, she's thinking right now, like, what are you thinking? You're probably thinking about her. I I hate her. That little blankety blank from fourth grade. Like, whoa. Stop holding her responsible for the choices you make to sin in your sadness, Xerxes. And stop holding him responsible to fill up your broken well. What I'm saying to all of us, stop accepting the responsibility to do Jesus' job. He's the only one who can fix broken wealth. He's the only one who can tame the monster of discontentment. He's the only one who can fill the soul. Now I'm talking to some of y'all who are fixing to get married and you are convinced. When I get married, what we're going to do all day, every day, and I will never lust again. And all the married people are like, oh man. (laughs) No. No. Right. The only thing missing in my life is a relationship. If I could just have that person, that person. Don't put that on that person. Only Jesus is the king of contentment. Only Jesus can cure the deep longings of the soul. What Xerxes was looking for, he was never going to find in the first assembly, in the second assembly, in the 50th site that you visited. It's not going to work. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. I don't know why Siri's talking to me or where she's coming from. Not you, Siri. Only Jesus. (laughs) Okay, anyway. So Esther, uh, she's married to the king with a wandering wee-wee. And uh, she continues um, to live in this situation where he's collecting girls. By the way, I can't help but wonder, I hope maybe one day I'll have an opportunity to ask some questions for sure. But I can't help but wonder if Vashti was eventually like, yeah, no, I'm out. This is not for me, bro. You can keep the crown. You can keep the throne. I'm going to try and keep a little bit of my dignity. I'm out. I don't know. Um, In either case, we've established Xerxes is a little bit of a jerk. But can we please talk about Esther for just a minute, though? Because she's not bringing her best self to this marriage either. Don't believe me? Check this out. Verse number 20. But Esther had kept secrets. That is not a good way to build a relationship. She kept secret her family background and her nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, because Esther continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. I'm um, side note, and I realize today is not a marriage seminar, but um. If there is a human being on this planet whose desires and voice carry more weight than that of your spouse, you are not setting yourself up for success. I'm sorry, Esther. Still taking your cues from daddy, from Mordecai. I'm just telling you right now, bro, if mom is the one you run to and her voice is the one that carries the most weight, it's just not going to work. And if the kids are the ones whose desires and their plans and their goals, that's what it's just not going to work. But that's not what we're ultimately talking about. Mainly, can we talk about Esther, though? I mean, I'm just asking for a friend. Based on everything you now know about Esther, what do you think about her? Do you like her? Is she cool? Uh, Let me give you a summary in case you missed it. Esther is uh, compliant. Esther is... uh, a liar. Esther is, she's a fornicator. Did I miss anything? Okay. Esther is Jewish. Esther is incredibly beautiful. And Esther is an orphan. Yeah, but for those three things, she had nothing to do with those. She had no say in those. I'm actually asking about the things over which Esther actually had some say. She actually had a little bit of control. And I'm just asking, what do you think about Esther? Because there was an order that went out for her to surrender her body To be used by the king. And she complied. She cooperated. She went along with it. Ew. When it was time to go and sleep with a man who was not her husband. Esther received explicit instructions from her dad Mordecai. To lie about her heritage, to lie about her nationality. And what did Esther do? She lied, making her a complier, liar, crown on fire. So, I'm just asking all you good church going and church watching folk how do you feel about esther the the heroine of this story a complicit lying fornicator how do you feel about that man i can tell you that as i've been A little more curious and asking more questions. Esther is nothing like I thought she was when I first heard about her. How do you feel about Esther? And maybe some of you are like, I don't know. Like, maybe there's something in the culture that I don't quite understand. That's good. That's. Maybe some of you say, man, I, I. I feel compassion for. Esther, I mean, you say she had a choice, but did she really, really have a choice? It seemed like our choices were incredibly constrained, and she had a really tough upbringing. I feel compassion for her. And then there's some of you who are like, I like Esther. Oh, yeah, I love her Beyonce spirit, because she's a survivor. She gonna make it. Because sometimes you've just got to do what you've got to do to survive. And that's what she did. And some of you are like, I'm a good Christian. I'm out on Esther. I didn't realize she was a little heathen pagan. I'm calling my sweet little Nana Esther just to make sure she understands the background of her name and what she's repping and whatnot. And then some of you are like, what do I think about Esther? Think. I don't come to church to think. (laughs) I come to be told what to. Anyway. How do you feel about this complicit, compromising woman of God right about now? I'll go. I'll tell you where I'm at with Esther. Um. I like Esther so much. Um, I probably fall in the compassion camp when it comes to um, Esther. But it took me a moment of maybe being a little more curious and maybe asking a few more questions about her. And um, the biggest realization for me was triggered... When I heard somebody say, um, yeah, I don't like her. Why didn't she refuse to compromise her biblical principles in order to honor her God? Mm, I don't like her at all. Even if it meant her freedom. Even if it meant her life, she should have done the biblical and the right thing. I was triggered when somebody said, why didn't she tell me, why didn't she like Daniel? Say, I don't care what the most powerful king on the planet says. I refuse to compromise. I refuse to stop praying three times a day. You can throw me in a den with lions if you want, but I am going to honor my God. Why didn't she like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say like, Ah, no, we are not bowing to some human king no matter how powerful he is. We bow to God alone. You can throw us in the fire if you want. We are not compromising our values. We are not compromising our faith in God. Why didn't Esther do that? And then I was like, "Um, maybe, maybe because Esther is asking, Why are y'all accusing me of caring a thing about your God? And then I started going down this path. I'm like, um, I don't know, Esther, that's a really good question. What made you all think I have any concern about the God of your Bible what made you all think that I have a single Bible app on my royal phone I was born in Persia I was raised in Persia I speak with a Persian accent I have a Persian name I have a Persian rug at my house I look so Persian, I'm the queen of Persia. What gave you the slightest impression that I have any problem sleeping with someone who's not my husband? In this book, Esther does not quote the Bible once. She does not pray to God one time. She does not say glory, hallelujah, and praise the good Jesus. Nothing. I processed that and I was like, wow. Um, See what we do? How quickly thousands and thousands of us can all agree on a perception about someone who didn't even get a say in it. I imposed my Christianity on Esther, and then I judged her for not being Christian enough. Because that's what we do. I assume someone had the same upbringing, And the same information and values I did. Therefore, they should believe and behave accordingly. right? And then the church, we are notorious for this. For rising up in arms. And we just are so disgusted that ungodly people are doing ungodly things. We're beside ourselves. Man, I was like... sorry Esther, I should have asked. Maybe you're just a beautiful young woman who has a tender spirit that you honor Mordecai if he asks you to do something. and Maybe sleeping with someone who's not your husband isn't a moral issue to you. Maybe an order from the king is just an order from the king. It is what it is. And all of a sudden, there is possibility for Esther to just be a girl. Maybe just be a victim. Making choices to just live and survive another day. Maybe Esther's looking at us like, stop making me your hero. I didn't volunteer for that. Put me on a pedestal and then shoot me down. I haven't said a thing about any of that. And man, all of a sudden it starts to feel cruel to impose the American Christian expectation and then judge a girl who's just trying to survive. I'm just saying before you decide that they are gross monsters, maybe ask a few more questions. And again, a great reminder for the church, even so, at the end of the day, it is Jesus who ultimately changes the heart. It is not my judgment. It is not my shock. It is not my disgust. That's where I'm at with Esther. She's just a girl living in Persia, trying to figure things out. And she's not claimed to be anything more than that. Nor has the Bible. Anyway, speaking of more questions, um, man, I'd encourage you as you work your way through uh, sermon questions, um, man, to process these honestly with the, the people around you—your small group, mission or community, or your family, or your friends, or co-workers—during um, lunch break, of course. Um, but here's an interesting question in, in light of some of this. Is it actually ever okay to lie for the greater good? Mordecai, for some reason, we'll explore that a little bit later, wants Esther to lie about her background. And we assume it's for her protection in some way or another. So I'm just asking, is it, is it ever okay to to lies. Every scenario in which you picture Jesus being okay with you lying for the greater good. Now, careful. If you say, yeah, I think so, then you're acknowledging that, you know, morality may be situational. Right and wrong may be relative. Depends on the situation. If you say, yeah, no. I don't think there's ever a situation in which it's ever acceptable to lie. Like, okay. I'll just say to you, brother, like, keep that energy. When she asks you, do these pants make me look uncomfortable? (laughs) Yeah. I tell the truth to honor my God to see him very soon you know <laughs> it's just a question let's keep asking questions um all right moving on we'll, we'll wrap up this section during uh, the time of mordecai uh, this is verse 21 during the time mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Oof. Things are getting tense. Ah, so Mordecai had a job at the, the palace gate. Maybe some kind of security situation. We're not exactly sure. But apparently two of some pretty significant security guys who determined who could and could not come into the palace. These guys got angry with King Xerxes. Why? The author doesn't tell us. But history tells us again. During uh, Xerxes' pleasure binge. He started to demand and take the wives of some of his officials. Some of his Officers, So it's not entirely surprising that some of his own heads of security might have been angry enough to be scheming his absolute demise. I mean, this guy in a position of power continues to just take and take the things that mean the most to us. And he's the king. So there's no recourse. There's nothing we can do to stop it. So he just continues to take and take whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And these guys snap. The only way that this will ever change is if something drastic happens. Anyway, verse number 22, Mordecai found out about the plot. And he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king and gave credit to Mordecai. In the future weeks, this will become really significant. So Mordecai goes and he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king. And I'm like, Mordecai, snitches get stitches, brother. But I find this to be a really interesting move, right? I mean, this power monger sitting on the throne, he abducted your daughter, And he has done that to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other daughters. You've overheard a plot that could possibly take out the world's leader in sex trafficking. And you interfered with that kind of karma? Mordecai. By the way, I'm just asking you while we're talking about this. Would you support Mordecai? And his choice to break up this plot. Or would you side with these two guys? I'm curious to know. Man, about three or four years ago, I would have thought that's a ridiculous question to ask in the church. Now, I'm like, no, no, it's not. Would you support this plot or Mordecai's attempt to shut it down. That's what I'm asking y'all. I'm asking you, in your mind, is there room for drastic, maybe even forceful measures? When there is an abuse of power and it feels like there is no other recourse, no matter what we've tried, someone in a position of power continues to take and take and take what's valuable to us and the things that mean the most to us. Is there ever a time called enough is enough where forceful measures become acceptable? Are you like with Mordecai, like, no, I don't think that's appropriate. Some of you will say, yep, there is a time to take drastic measures, even if someone gets hurt. So, yeah, I mean, all of a sudden we can have this conversation. Yeah, so so if somebody is, is, I I support those people. If a group of minorities believe that the judicial system is bent against them and they decide like the only course we feel like we have is to go and maybe even cross the legal line and do some crazy stuff, I'm with them. If a group of people feel like men, people in positions of power and corruption have somehow stolen an election, and no matter what legal channels we try to make this right, we can't do it, something's got to give. I support whatever means necessary. I'm just asking you. Would you, and some of you are like, I support. Whichever extreme measures I agree with. <laughs> uh-huh. Otherwise those people are just violent thugs. But these people, they are revolutionaries with a cause. Church is so good. We should go every week, honey. And some of you may say, man, no matter what this insatiable king has done, he does not deserve to die. I think warning him is a way to go, and you leave justice to God no matter what it costs you, no matter what it costs your family, no matter how uncomfortable it gets. Anyway, the more I thought about this, the more I'm like, I get what Mordecai did. Maybe not at a highly philosophical level, but I wonder if Mordecai was thinking like, "Uh, I have connections to the most powerful and the wealthiest woman in the world right now. I'm going to go ahead and keep that connection. Or Mordecai may have been thinking like, listen, if we call for an assassination and these guys go in while Esther is with the king, she gets eliminated. I'm not about that. If he gets taken out, the next king comes in. You think he's going to keep her? Mm -mm. (laughs) I love it at the end of the day Mordecai didn't make a philosophical godly decision based on the scriptures and the honor of God he just made a self-serving decision what's in my best interest and that's what most of us do no matter how you try and dress it up you're just trying to protect your family and your interests and you make decisions you defend them and you indict I'm going to carry on here Um, verse 23 and when the report was investigated and found to be true the two officials were impaled on poles. all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king Um, man if we had more time we would talk about this because I think this is so special that even in the midst of all of these accusations like Xerxes here he is He makes a measured decision. He's not paranoid enough to say, well, if you say so, I'm eliminating these people. Even though the report came from his wife, he investigated it. He checked it out. He made sure. And I'm like, we could learn so much from Xerxes. Like to just ask more questions to make sure before we react. So Somebody said, in fact, did you hear what CNN said about President Trump? Come on. Right? Maybe ask some questions. Did you hear what Fox said about Joe Biden? Right. Okay. Right. I love the fact that just because a report came from somebody that he thought was, he didn't react right away. And we're going to see more of this measured decisions throughout the course of this story. But for now, I, I need to invite Kirsten out. Let me, let me say this. Um, I found it really interesting in this section of scripture how committed we are and for some reason or another I don't know why it is that we feel the need for our heroes to be all good and we feel this need for man our nemesis to be all bad and so it becomes impossible to celebrate some of the amazing things that Xerxes actually does. And it becomes impossible to indict some of the cray cray things that, you know, Esther does. And what this story teaches us is, again, we are all just a bunch of messy, broken people, and at the end of this story, we will be reminded over and over again, there is only one perfect hero, and his name is Jesus, and he's the one we ought to focus all of our attention to when you see the church start to look for a candidate to be their perfect out, or their perfect leader, or when we start to think somebody has to be perfectly imperfect, you know, then we start to miss some of the reality that we are all just a broken mess, there's one hero, and his name name is Jesus, and he's the only one who can change and heal our country, our hearts, and whatever else is broken in the world around us. Father, thank you so much for the lessons you continue to teach us in this book. Help us, Lord, to not just be grateful for what it is that you are doing, but, Lord, to live accordingly. Help us not to be people who just show up to church, but don't continue to process what it is you may be challenging us with or what it is you may be calling us to. And Lord, even as you continue to call us to carry your mission forward, help us, Lord, to continue to say, yes, it's in Jesus' name, and we pray. Amen.